God speaks his word to us today from 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 400 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Azra who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you will call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. And continuing in verse 30, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar, as great as would contain two seals of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the ablation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then from Psalm 61, verses 1 through 3. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. This is the word of the Lord. This month we're talking about finding hope in God's goodness. And I told the the crowd in Sunday school this morning, I'm irked. I'm irked because some of my colleagues, not, not around these parts, of course. Some of my colleagues have uh, had some discussion I've been privy to, and some of them have said that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about mental health. And um, I beg to differ. Uh, this month, we have looked at King David and how he wondered if the Lord had forgotten him. We looked at the Apostle Paul, who thought he was going to die and despaired even of life itself. Last week, we looked at Moses, the divinely appointed leader of God's people, who said, kill me, kill me now. I'm overwhelmed. I can't do this. Today, we're going to look at the prophet Elijah. Uh, Dolores read for us 1 Kings 18 from his mountaintop experience, literally the pinnacle of his public ministry, the showdown at Mount Carmel Corral. One against 450, and he wins. Well, the Lord wins, right? And God shows himself dramatically in a display of fire as he has other places in the Old Testament. The burning bush, just for one example, Mount Sinai for another. The Lord revealed himself by fire. But what we're going to see in a minute is God doesn't always do that. So when we talk about mental health, it, it, it came to my attention. Um, I love sports. I, I follow sports. Uh, and some months ago, um, I want to pronounce her name correctly, Simone Biles, the great gymnast, um, you know, she talked about some um, mental health issues. So did the tennis player, Naomi Osaka, um, Hayden Hurst, tight end from my alma mater, University of South Carolina, down in Columbia, the Holy Land. Um, <laughs> actually, it's a really, really humid place. But uh, uh, um, he's, he's tight end. I think he's on the Falcons now. And, and others, a basketball player. Some of these people have gone public with their struggles with their mental health and, and mental well-being. And, and it, it seems to me that there's usually one of two responses to that. Either they are applauded, they're thanked for their courage, thank you for being an example, so many of us struggle, thank you for being a public figure and being honest about your story, et cetera, et cetera. Or, I don't know what, with what frequency, but the other response seems to be, come on, snowflake, you're a performer, get with it. Put that stuff out of your mind and perform, my TV's on. That seems to be the other reaction. And sometimes I wonder if we do that in the church. 
See, the reason that we're talking about finding hope in God's goodness this month is because I think a lot of times Christians are kind of repressed people. We tamp down this stuff. We put our emotions into a corner or a closet or, or somewhere. And, and Paul gives the best definition of abundant life in Philippians chapter 3 when he says um, that I may know him the power of his resurrection. Amen. Oh, we're Presbyterian. We don't do that. How many of y'all are Presbyterian here today? Okay, see, Presbyterians do raise their hands in church. Okay, All right. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. It's a both and, friends. We've got strands of Christendom that want to uh, stress one to the exclusion of the other, and maybe vice versa. A recent study by a nationally known insurance company um, came out with results in- indicating what they termed was a loneliness epidemic growing in the United States, with 61% of adults saying that they often feel lonely. And to me, the irony of this is this, this report um, by this insurance company was published January 23rd, 2020, which means about six weeks before the shutdown, pandemic, whatever you want to call it. 61%. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon says, I find myself frequently depressed, perhaps more so than any other person here. And I find no better cure for that depression than to trust in the Lord with all my heart and seek to realize afresh the power of the peace-speaking blood of Jesus and his infinite love in dying upon the cross to put away all my transgressions. Well, he he, he goes to Christ, and that's a great solace to him. Uh, You may know Bob and I were talking. uh, uh, Spurgeon was preaching in a church. Somebody yelled, fire. Uh, and there was a stampede, and multiple people died. I can't remember. I want to say about eight. Multiple people died, and he, he never got over it. He was so guilt-ridden, felt so terribly. Uh, there, he had some personal health struggles as well. Um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, posted the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Castle. His, his wife, what was her name? Um, Kat, Katarine? Katarine, do you know that? Um, she used to dress up in black and go about the house in chains sometimes to shake him out of his doldrums. And me, I told you last week, and uh, on the back of your outline was the far side, the chicken of depression, because it makes me laugh at myself and uh, not take myself so seriously. Um, as we get started this morning, this is not in your notes, but I want to give you the ABCs of what I think God is after. God is after your heart. God is after your heart, your whole person. And the ABCs that are not in your outline are this. A for affect, B for behavior, and C for cognition. I'll repeat that. A for affect, like affection, it's your emotional makeup. We are created in the image of God, and our emotions are God-given. Now, the problem is they're fallen. They're not reliable. We can't trust them, but they are good. They're from God. A for affect. B is for behavior. Behavior is your conduct. It's what you do. C is for cognition. It's 
your cognitive abilities. It's how you think. And we need to have our minds renewed in Christ. We need to let Scripture wash over us. We need to learn to think rightly about God. Those are my ABCs, affect, behavior, and cognition. And I believe that when you put those three together, that's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with your whole self, with, with your inner person. I believe that all of this is involved. And I'll say this much in case I forget to mention it later. Yeah, I'll say it now. Um, If you go to a counselor, even a Christian counselor, I think often what you find is they'll come at it from A or B or C. Just read your Bible more and everything will be okay. Um, Just do the right thing. Just do the right thing and your feelings will catch up. Your feelings will follow. Or just explore your feelings. That's all you need to do. Just vent and then your life will be good. And I, I think those approaches are insufficient. I think it takes a plus B, plus C. Let me lay one other f- opinion out on the table before we read God's word, and it's, it's this. It's okay for a Christian to take medication. If you have a um, sore back, you need a muscle relaxer or whatever. If there are, are, if there are aspects of your brain chemistry that are, that are out of accord, you can perhaps be helped by medicine. Now, it's, it's often ticklish to find the right medication and the right dosage and such. And I say this, Christians, because I think there are two sort of uh, extremes or schools of thought. One is we throw a pill at everything, right? In America, we are such an over-medicated people. Now, the doctors, I think, are sort of swinging the pendulum back from that sum, but, you know, write a script for anything. You know, here's a feel-good pill. You'll be fine. Uh, But the other extreme, and this exists within Christendom, within Reformed Presbyterian circles, is um, it's called neuthetic counseling, and I'm not completely, if if you're a neuthetic counselor, you're here this morning, or or, or you go to somebody who practices it, I'm not completely against it. My whole ministry is staked on the Bible and learning to think rightly about God. But the neuthetic, the hardcore neuthetic approach, neuthetic means from the Greek word nous, which is your mind, is it's it's just the cognitive of A, B, and C. It's just cognition, is Christians don't need medicine. So one extreme is throw a pill at everything. Just take a pill, you'll be better. The other extreme is Christians can never take a pill. You're weak, that's a crutch, it's no good. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is my opinion here. And we'll see how the elders are with me after today's sermon. But, <laughs> b- but I'm going to tell you, I, I believe that we need to talk about this stuff in the church because while we are trumpeting the power of his resurrection, we're forgetting the fellowship of his sufferings. That he was a man of sorrow that he was acquainted with grief. And it's okay if you can be helped by medicine, perhaps for a season or perhaps long term.
All right, let's get into God's word. 1 Kings 19. Dolores read most of 18 for us. His pinnacle, his mountaintop experience, the showdown at the Mount Carmel Corral. What happens immediately on the heels of that? Chapter 19. Let's just read the first eight verses right now. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Ahab is, uh, um, um, Jezebel is his wife. He's the king, she's the queen. So he told uh, her all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I did not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he, he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Let's pray. Lord, this is so delightful to be gathered together publicly declaring your praises, singing to you, uh, worshiping you, the one true God. Uh, the I am. And, and we ask you to minister your grace to us. Uh, it, it seems my, my knowledge and training seems inadequate. Uh, the, the, the time allotted for our, our weekly gathering seems so brief. But would you come and minister your grace to us now uh, as you can? We believe that you will for we're giving attention to the public reading of Scripture. We're going to hear the gospel publicly proclaimed. And so we believe you in Jesus' name. Amen. He asked that he might die. One moment he's on the mountaintop the Lord answers dramatically, and then he gets home from youth conference, and he's down in the pits. <laughs> um, what happened? What led to him wanting to die? This is Elijah's lowest moment. Did he want to die, or did he not want to die? He ran for his life. He didn't want to die. He said to the Lord, Take away my life. So he wanted to die. So did he or did he not? He's ambivalent. He left his servant in Beersheba and went further. So he did want to die. Maybe as it says also in verse 4. So he's exhausted. Why, why did he want to die? Or why was he at least ambivalent, mixed feelings about this? He's exhausted. He's exhausted from running. Um, the distance that he ran, chapter 18, verse 46, says he ran from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. That's, you know, at least 15 miles. Jezebel puts a hit out on him. He's more, he runs some more. He's exhausted. How far is that? 
from Jezreel down to Beersheba. It's a long way. I don't know. I, commentators, I'm not an expert in the geography. Got to confess. Been to seminary. Doesn't mean I'm the Bible answer man. All right? Looked it up on some maps. Looked on commentaries. It's dozens of miles. 50, 100, whatever. Dude ran. Dude's tired. And he's filled with fear. Fear is a very powerful motivator. Fear is exhausting. When we have powerful emotions, strong emotions like fear, um, it wears us out. Quick question. Isn't it a sin for a believer to be depressed? Say, oh, pastor, you said we can take medication. Isn't it a sin? Isn't it just lack of faith? Isn't it all just a lack of faith? Mm. What have we been looking at? David, Psalm 13, and we look at the other Psalms, and when he's pouring out his hearts before the Lord, wondering if he's been abandoned by God, is there sin in his life? He's engaging in holy arguing. He's taking his doubts to the Lord. Uh, he says he's faint-hearted in several instances, this, this mighty warrior. You know, he's a warrior poet in a sensitive side, but he's a warrior. Remember, Saul has killed his thousands, David is ten thousands. He was a mighty warrior. It, it was his circumstances. He's being chased around in the desert. Folks are trying to kill him. He had to live in a cave. His circumstances got him down. So is it always a result of sin? We looked at Moses last week, Numbers 11. He was overwhelmed. The people were complaining. Failed to say it last week, said it in Sunday school. I'll say it again. The hardest verse in the Bible for us to obey is Philippians 2.14. You ought to jot that one down. It was in your notes last week. I went over it. I skipped it. Philippians 2.14, what does it say? Do all things without grumbling or disputing, without grumbling or complaining. Hardest verse to obey in the Bible. Hardest verse in the Bible to obey. That sounds better. It can be a result of sin. Look at Jonah in Jonah chapter 4. The Lord asks him, do you do well to be angry? He says twice, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. What is Jonah's problem? Uh, he's a racist. He's full of unforgiveness. Uh, he's a bitter person. He hates his enemies. And he resents God. I call that sin. Uh, we could look at others. We could look at, uh, at Job. But what do the scriptures say about Job? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And yet, he, he had moments where he wished he'd never been born. So did the prophet Jeremiah. As I said, King David, uh, I'm not going to list the Psalms. I've got them here. He, he talked about how he, his spirit fainted within him. It was external circumstances, his response to, to them. So I would say no, it is not it can be a sin, but it is doesn't have to always be sin for a believer to be downcast, to be struggling with feelings of depression, with thoughts of death. 
Now, that's no trifling thing, is it? Now, now, the prophet did not presume upon the grace of God. He did not presume to take his own life. Suicide. He, he asked the Lord, take my life. I'm no better than those that came before me. We have thoughts of suicide, thoughts of wanting to die. That's pretty serious stuff. I'm not an expert in all that. I'm not a licensed counselor. I'm a pastor. But when somebody starts talking to you repeatedly about that and they show you the gun or the pills or they tell you their plan, where they're going and when they're going to do it, you better take that seriously. Whether that's a loved one, a young person, or whomever. But the prophet didn't presume. Anyway, I've got more I'd like to say about it. We've got to move on. I I don't believe it's a sin, always, or because of sin, that believers are depressed. And and note here in the passage, God is still with him, and Jesus is our Emmanuel. Um, Some other, I, I like to recommend books. I don't know if anybody reads books I recommend, but I do, and I like to recommend them. Uh, so here's two, Spiritual Depression, Martin Lloyd-Jones has helped me significantly. Spiritual Depression, great book. Um, there's a new book, or newer book by Ed Welch. Do you know CCEF, Christian Counseling Education Foundation? Um, Ed Welch, it's about depression. The subtitle is Looking Up from a Stubborn Darkness. Um, The depressed person needs multiple things in their life, not just one thing. They need A plus B plus C to be attended to, the whole person, their whole heart. The word of the Lord came. Let's read some more. Verses 9 through 18. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 14, he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be the king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of that place, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel 
all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. He's not alone. And I tell you what, if there is a sin, it's not by these great figures in the Bible that go astray. It's not always sin. I'm making the case. But if it is sin, it's not in these instances here gross immorality. The Bible is an earthy book, not earthly, earthy. It's an earthy book. Rape, incest, sodomy, adultery. It doesn't shy away from any of that stuff. But in the stuff we're looking at together, there's none of that. It's not gross immorality. So where the great men of God sometimes go awry, and I know in my own life, is not thinking rightly about God. It's thinking that you're alone when you're not. What are you doing here, Elijah? Well, now, where is here? Um, Horeb. All right, the, rather than tell you all the, my study stuff, um, Old Testament expert Walter Kaiser says that this happened, this encounter happened at the cave, perhaps this, likely the same mountain, maybe even the same cave, the cleft in the rock, where God met with Moses. And Kaiser knows what he's talking about. I trust him. There are interesting parallels between Elijah and Moses. What are you doing here, Elijah? You ever notice how God asks these questions, and Jesus too? That he's omniscient. He knows the answer, so who is he? For whose benefit is he asking the question? Where are you? To Adam in the garden? Do you think God didn't know? you think he needed directions? Peter, do you love me? When he asks these questions, he asks for the benefit of that other person that they might verbalize what's going on with them and what they believe about God. Dale Ralph Davis says, uh, sees Yahweh's question here, where are you, as an invitation rather than a rebuke. I see it kind of as both. Um, anyway, the end of the story is go. Verse 15, anoint three times. Uh, God's going to bring judgment. But what we need to see here is that the Lord was in the whisper, not the wind, earthquake, or fire. Not in fire. Wait a minute. Chapter 18. Let's have a contest, dudes. I'm going to pour extra water on it. Do it again. God who answers by fire, he is God. And the Lord sent down fire from heaven because God often reveals himself by fire. The burning bush, Mount Sinai etc. But not this time. The Lord's voice was in the whisper, a still small voice. 
not the dramatic, not the wind, not the earthquake or the fire. So don't try to reduce God, the living God, I am, yeah, yeah, Yahweh is yeah, yeah, I am, from the to be. Don't reduce him to a formula. The Lord had shown that he was God previously by fire to Elijah and the king and the priests of Baal and the people. Dale Ralph Davis uh, speaks of a contrast. He says, you may not find Yahweh in the spectacular explosions of so-called nature, but you can be sure he is present in his quiet word given to his prophets, a word that directs history and preserves a people. Before we move on for letter C, a few points to ponder. I just want to point out to you the ABCs of Elijah's life, God's whole person treatment of Elijah. Talk therapy. Where are you, Elijah? He wants him to verbalize. Talk therapy. He's dealing with his emotional makeup, his, this guy who was afraid and exhausted, afraid for his life. That's A, affect. His behavior he gives them a new commission. Go and do this. I've got these people you, you're not even thinking about. You wonder if I have a plan? I've got a plan. It's above your pay grade. I don't always have to reveal it to you. See, the reason that Elijah was so depressed, I think, is that when he ran back to the capital city, he thought revival was going to break out. Either the people were going to rise up and there'd be a grassroots rebellion and they'd throw out Ahab and uh, Jezebel, or that the king and queen would repent, but the Lord had shown he was God in dramatic fashion. Now, now good times are going to happen. And it didn't. And as we said last hour Sunday school, the difference between expectation and reality is often called disappointment. And Elijah was disappointed with God. God says, I have a program. I got people you don't even know about. I have my people everywhere. Affect, behavior. Um, for his cognition, he gives him some correction. And he treats his body, right? Eat and drink. Man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by bread. Points to ponder. Let her see in your outline. Um, we'll run through these. Be aware that spiritual victories are often followed by low moments. I'll just leave that there. Be aware that spiritual victories are often followed by low moments. Second, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is eat and sleep. And it's partly based on this that I said it's okay for a Christian sometimes to have medication. Look how God treats his whole person. Eat, drink, sleep. There's a psalm that says, God gives to his beloved even rest. I struggle with my sleep. Um, I know others who live with chronic pain, and when I'm awake in the wee hours, I try to remember to pray for my friends who live with chronic pain. If you have trouble sleeping, I have a, a document. I can send it to you. I call it Sleeping in the Psalms. It's, it's what the Lord says about sleep in multiple places. I'll send it to you. Just email me. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is eat and sleep. Now, now we know that too much 
isn't good, right? Too much can be depression, right? So you just you know, comfort food and you indul- overindulge or too much sleep because you're depressed. What did, what did Jonah do? Jonah chapter 1. He went down to Tarship. He went down to where the ships were. He went down in the, the below deck in the ship. And this downward spiral keeps cycling down. He's, get, throw me overboard. Kill me. And he sinks down in the water. Think that dude was down? Uh, and what is he doing below deck when everybody is, the sailors are fighting for their lives? He's sleeping. That's the sleep of depression. That's not good sleep from the Lord. Okay? Uh, Kaiser says, uh, Walter Kaiser, he's awesome. Um, what Elijah needed more than anything else was refreshment to his jangled nerves and exhausted body. Spurgeon says, Jesus slept. Remember him in the boat, storm-tossed boat? Jesus slept. Here is the weakness of humanity, and here is also the strength of faith. Jesus went to sleep because the boat was in his father's hands and he had to take care of it. Sometimes the best thing we can do is go to bed. Let's move on. Number three, um, Elijah thought wrongly that he was alone and felt sorry for himself. Sometimes I throw a pity party and I'm the only one on the guest list. He thought wrongly that he was alone and he felt sorry for himself. I put it in bold for you, verses 10 and 14. I, even I only am left. They're coming to get me. But if we went back to the start of chapter 18, before where Dolores read, there's a story of a guy named Obadiah and how he had a hundred prophets in the caves. Plus what we read about the 7,000 and the new commissioning of the three. There's always a remnant. When you read the Old Testament and it's boring, and it's doom and gloom, and you start reading, I'm a good Christian, I'm going to read the Bible. God wants me to read the Bible, I'm going to read the Bible. And open some book of the Bible, and you know, there, judgment, doom, and gloom. This is really great, Lord, I feel so encouraged. <laughs> you must look for notes of hope and restoration and a remnant. God always preserves a people for his own possession, a faithful remnant. God has his people everywhere. A friend of mine likes to say, the only reason that the sun rose today is because God is still, Jesus is still gathering a people for himself and he's using us to do it. We must be prepared to quietly hear from the Lord. Uh, God doesn't always answer with the fireworks skywriting i was down in florida i have a picture on my camera first week of december we took a family vacation we were in florida and uh there was a, somebody who wrote in the sky and what did it say it said uh, i love jesus that's what it said it was like wow finally god did skywriting because <laughs> you know we, that's what we want right god just do some skywriting and i'll do whatever you tell me to do you know but god doesn't do skywriting so listen for a still small voice. God uses people. Second Corinthians 7. God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. God will use people in your life. He probably ain't going to use skywriting. 
He's going to use his word, <laughs> and he's probably going to use people in your life, most of all. Holy Spirit, too, of course. All right, so contrary to the notions of Elijah, this is the note from the Reformation Study Bible. Contrary to the notions of Elijah, divine silence doesn't mean divine inactivity. Divine silence doesn't mean divine inactivity. One commentator says, too often people want to nourish and sustain their faith through some ongoing encounter with the supranormal and miraculous, and when it doesn't come or occur, they sink into despondency. You know people like that. Your buddy who was so on fire for the Lord six weeks, six months, six years ago, and what's going on with them now? Kind of fizzled, because that guy lives from experience to experience. Spiritual high to spiritual high, and he doesn't know what to do. In the in-between times, the ordinary stuff of life. I had a very, very short-lived blog. I called it Humdrum Pastor. There's a lot of life that's just humdrum and ordinary. Uh, there's more I could say, but we, 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 should, we should pray. That's what we should do. Let's, 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 let's pray. Lord, you are so gentle. A bruised reed you will not break. A smoldering wick you will not snuff out. You give rest. Jesus, you give rest. Help us to come to you with all that we are, with our whole hearts, with our affect, with our behavior, with our cognition. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.